0: When I was young, at least as I recall it, adoption was not a matter of significant controversy. Public and private adoption agencies worked diligently to place children needing families with those who wanted to love them. Private adoptions were common. I even represented a few adopting parents when I practiced law with nary a hitch. These days that has changed. Adoption has been caught up, at least to some degree, in the culture wars surrounding abortion and gay rights. Adoption of children from foreign countries also sometimes gets entangled in disputes among nations, leaving wanted children unadopted and yearning parents heartbroken. But we all need families. There are still children desperate to live in permanent and loving homes in which to grow up and thrive. Adoption is a too little discussed issue about which I confess I am woefully ignorant. So in this episode of Humanize, I thought it would be edifying to explore adoption from several angles with an expert in the field. Ryan Hanlon is acting CEO and president of the National Council for Adoption. He oversees NCFA's educational projects, including the annual National Adoption Conference for Adoption Professionals and online educational programs, training, and resources. He also leads NCFA's research initiatives and its federal legislative and policy work. Additionally, Ryan serves as liaison to NCFA's members, including adoption service providers and adoption attorneys throughout the United States. Ryan came to NCFA with over 13 years of experience as an adoption professional. Prior to NCFA, he served as the Executive Director of a Hague-accredited agency that focuses on both domestic and intercountry adoption. Ryan has experienced serving as a foster care caseworker as well as with Child Protective Services. In the field of adoption, Ryan has been a speaker at national conferences and has worked on accreditation issues and state licensing matters. After receiving his B.A., Ryan went on to earn an M.A. in liberal arts, an M.S. in nonprofit management, as well as a master of social work degree. He earned a Ph.D. in social work from Catholic University of America. He has served as a social work field instructor and an adjunct professor of social work to both undergraduate and graduate students. Ryan, welcome to Humanize.
1: Thank you for having me, Wesley. It's great to be here.
0: You spent your entire career, it seems, involved with helping children in the foster care and adoption context. What attracted you to that field?
1: You know, I, um, I I wasn't originally planning on getting into this field, but when I was in college, I had a great opportunity one summer to work for an adoption agency. And during that time, we actually traveled overseas. I, I saw the conditions of children in orphanages, and then um, when we were back in the United States, I saw um, how... Um, many uh, very similar children were then thriving with adoptive parents. And um, it certainly got my attention. And I thought, well, you know, for the first year at of college, this is what I want to do. And um, here I am a few decades later, uh, still doing the same thing.
0: Time flies, huh? That's right. Tell us about the work of the National Council for Adoption.
1: Well, uh, we're, uh, um, as our name implies, we're a national organization. Um, and, and we focus actually internationally as well. So we focus on all types of adoption. Um, that includes adoptions from foster care, uh, private domestic adoptions, and intercountry adoptions. Um, at NCFA, we have member agencies and attorneys who are our members of NCFA. We've got over 100 members across the country. And then in terms of our work, we're focused on research, education, advocacy, and uh, collaborating with other organizations to promote adoption-related um, issues and to ensure that adoption practitioners have the best information and resources to serve the community well. Would it
0: be fair to say that you kind of work on both sides of that table, those who help people adopt and those who want to adopt?
1: Um, that's exactly right. We have resources for expected parents who are considering adoption. We have resources for uh, birth parents who have made decisions to place children for adoption. We have resources for um, individuals um, who are adopted uh, for adoptive families and um, then we we serve adoption agencies through our national conference and um, through uh, other um, educational offerings that we provide.
0: Let's do a, just a little discussion about basics. What is the difference between foster parenting and adopting?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So foster parenting is when you're working with your uh, county or the state that where you live to provide temporary, care for a child with the goal of helping that child reunify with um, his or her birth family. And so the the focus there is not on that child joining your family permanently, but rather on um, having a safe place until that child can have a permanent option. The difference with uh, foster parenting and adoption is that adoption is focused on permanency. And so when a child is placed uh, for adoption, that has the same legal rights as though a child were born to a family. And the focus of that placement is going to be that the child remains there permanently.
0: So when you're foster parenting, you do get some assistance from the community, that is in terms of financial help and so forth. Does that end if that child gets adopted?
1: That's, that's another good question. And that really depends on the type of adoption. So for um, a private um Domestic adoption, or for an intercountry adoption, it would be very rare to have ongoing um, support or services. Um, but actually, the majority of adoptions from foster care do get what's called either an adoption subsidy or adoption assistance, where those families um, maintain um, receiving assistance from the state or the county until um, usually it's when that child turns 18. Uh, but this varies from uh, location to location. Uh, there there are qualifications for this. Um, The last um, report that the federal government put out, it was around 90% of adoptions from foster care are getting that assistance. Um, To compare it as you did to foster care, um, it's not the same and it's not as much, uh, but it is uh, an important way that we can, um, through public policy, be supporting adoptive uh, families and where we can... um, incentivize or not have a financial disincentive in place so that a child remains away from permanency, but rather um, encourage um, when it's the, you know, the goal for the child to be placed for adoption, we can be encouraging uh, families to move from foster care to the permanency of adoption.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because uh, if you, if you disincentivize permanency, you're going to keep children stuck is not the right word, but Mired, perhaps, that may not be the right word, but in temporary circumstances, which leads to a sense of, uh, it would seem to me if it were me as a kid, as I think back, I I would have a real sense of uh, uh, of fear and and, uh, uh, vulnerability.
1: Well, you're right, and and the, some of those words you used, is stuck or mired. Unfortunately, those words can be used um, when when looking at um, some children within the system, where they uh, a system that's designed to be temporary ends up being, you know, um, a system where children are in for many years at a time. And um, what we don't want to do is have any barrier that's that's um, incentivizing children to to be there even longer. And so, um, you know. This is not only uh, the the right thing to do by children. It's also a way to save states and the federal government a lot of money. It's very expensive. as, as we can all imagine for a child to stay in foster care, and when we can move that child, um, you know, again, the, the primary goal is going to be to reunify with the child's birth family. When that's sure. not possible, and, and currently, um, the um, in, in twenty uh, twenty one, there were one hundred and seventeen thousand children waiting on adoption. Um, wow. When we can move those children from foster care to adoption, um, we're, we're giving those children uh, permanency. They're in a much um, better uh, place for, you know, in terms of what the outcomes look like for those children. And we're saving states and the federal government a lot of money um, so that they're not continuing to provide all those um, services that, that are part of the child welfare system.
0: And I think the best thing is that you're actually giving children a home where they can be loved, thrive, and grow into mature adults.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and as I said, um, the outcomes for children who are uh, placed for adoption – far exceed the outcomes for children who unfortunately never find permanency and then exit the system or emancipate from the system. Um, it depends on the state. It's either age 18 or age 21. It, it, the, the statistics for those children, and sometimes it's as many as 20,000 a year, um, In more recently it's been um, a little bit fewer than that, but this the outcomes for those children are really quite dire. Uh, they, they often um, end up not being able to um, get additional education and um, many are involved in the criminal justice system or you know have other negative life outcomes. And so what we want to do is ensure that as quickly as possible, a child who's available for adoption is finding the permanency um, that um, Is available. And Americans, by and large, are very open to adoption. There's a lot of interest in adoption. Um, The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption um, surveys Americans um, and their attitudes towards adoption. And many Americans are very interested in adoption. They've considered adoption. What we need to do as a country is then provide the supports and the policies so that this can become a reality for families. Then
0: what are the greatest impediments to adoption?
1: Well, it depends on the type of adoption. So I mentioned earlier that we focus on adoptions from foster care, uh, private domestic adoptions and inter-country adoptions, and I would answer that question differently for, all, um, for those three different types. Uh, for adoptions from foster care, um, we're, um, the primary goal, as we said, was reunification for children in foster care, but then for children that are waiting on adoption, um, there can be a few barriers. Uh, one, there's a lot of stigma. And uh, associated with um, children who are in the foster care system. So um, that that means that um, Americans who are, you know, considering that type of adoption may not have accurate information about what adoption entails. Um, they also uh, many of those children have also experienced a lot of hardships, and um, th- there might be associated behavioral challenges or others, you know, that stem from the past trauma, the abuse or neglect that they've had. Um, and many of these children are um, often older uh, and the majority of um, individuals who are looking to adopt are looking to adopt younger children. So what uh, we can do to both ensure that these children are placed in a timely manner um, and also help educate the public on and provide resources for uh, families that are interested in a good fit for older child adoption, uh, we'll be able to move more of those children into a permanent situation.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, so, but you brought it up. Uh, infant adoption is easier uh, for people to uh, contemplate, I guess, than older child adoption. Uh, if people are interested in older child adoption, is there some kind of a, a tryout process, if you will, or let's tr- see if it'll work kind of a circumstance that is allowed so people can actually give that a shot?
1: Well, that's an interesting way to, to, um, to think through it. Um, the, and, and it might start by, by helping listeners understand that actually the majority of adoptions in our country are adoptions from foster care. And -hmm. the majority of those adoptions uh, are happened by someone who's already, um, in a relationship with that child, um, either as a foster parent or as a relative or both. So, um, you know, over or it's around 50% of the adoptions are from a foster parent and another 30 or so percent are a relative of that child. So they already have a relationship with the child and they know who that child is. Um, but then to answer your question even more um, specifically or directly, um, states often do um, have a period of time where they're evaluating the placement before the adoption's finalized. So if they're looking to make a placement with a, you know, particular um, individual or couple, they will um, um, have an initial placement, they'll monitor that um, over a period of months, and then they'll move to the court system to finalize that adoption. And this is a period of time um, where it's important to um, have, you know, really highly qualified um, social workers and others who can come along and help the, the family in assessing, is this the right fit? Uh, and and by family, I mean, this the child as well, sure. and helping understand, is this Going to be an appropriate fit. Do we need more resources? Um, because um, once we move to finalize that adoption, what we don't want to do is have enough challenges where that um, adoption is either disrupted or needs to be dissolved. Um, yeah, and, um, that's not the the common outcome, but it's it's one that we would seek to avoid. I didn't know you could dissolve an adoption. Um, you, you could, um, and unfortunately, it does happen. Um, and so, not. Um, it's a legal process that um, families would go through. Um, It is state specific, but um, the majority of adoptions, um, the overwhelming majority of adoptions are successful. And so I wouldn't want to focus on that, but there are um, circumstances where um, things don't work out with an adoptive placement and the adoptive parents would move to dissolve the adoption for um, certain reasons. And that's why having more information, resources, training, and support, um, we can minimize the, the um, number of times that would happen.
0: Yeah, it's something that you need to go in with great deliberation and and uh, forethought. Uh, it shouldn't be uh, something done on an impulse because thing, if it's based on just feelings, things can change. How, how uh, intensive is the investigation by, by the state uh, social workers and so forth into uh, people who want to adopt?
1: Yeah, that's another really good question. That process is is typically called the home study process, and that's where the uh, social worker would meet with the family. They would, um, if it's a couple, they would meet with them individually um, as well as together, and and they do ask a lot of questions about um, their finances, about their health. Um, they'll do a inspection of the home in terms of safety, and um, they, they'll look into things like you know past um, criminal background checks. Um, I would describe it as, um, I, I don't think it's overly intense in the sense that um, anything is inappropriate. These are important, this is important information to know when making a placement decision. Um, but um, certainly for anyone who's not been through that process, it might feel somewhat invasive because this is sensitive or private information. Um But is it kept confidential?
0: Is it kept confidential?
1: It's absolutely kept confidential. Um, There are laws in place to protect that information. And the purpose is both um, to assess the parents um, and also to help equip them and ensure that this is going to be a good fit. So not every um, couple or or every individual is the best fit for every potential placement. And so part of what we want to do with a home study is understand what might be the best fit you know, for a placement? Would an older child placement be appropriate or might it only be for um, a younger child? Uh, would it be appropriate to do a placement of a child who has a medical special need of some sort? And that's the type of thing we'd wanna look at as well as perhaps the number of children. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of factors that go into this. One of the most important factors are, are there other children in this home already? Mm. And you know, what's gonna be the impact on those children um, oh, that's interesting. Part of what a social worker should be doing is taking a holistic view and saying, we're not only looking to find a, a permanent home for a child you know, in need, but we're also going to be looking at what's going to be the impact on the, the family that this child is joining. What's going to be the impact on the other children? It's going to be the impact on their marriage. You know, Do they have the finances to handle this? Do they have health insurance to meet the needs of a child who has medical special needs? All of that information, again, is going to seem very private or personal, but it's important because we're making um, what in the field of child welfare we call a best interest determination, and we want to be making decisions that are in the best interest of all parties involved. Of course, especially for that child who's already very vulnerable and had um, uh, you know, the, the circumstances that are leading towards that child needing a family, um, but not solely that child, um, but for the whole family unit.
0: Wow, that that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, I remember when I was younger, there were such a things in this country as orphanages. Do we still have
1: those? We don't um, have institutions that we label as orphanages, but we have um, residential treatment centers, and and this is a um, this can be thought of in a sense like orphanages because it's a institution that is housing children who aren't currently connected um, and, and being parented by either their parents or other guardians. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that child doesn't have parents, um, but it um, does mean that this child is being cared for in that institutionalized setting. And so uh, we have um, residential treatment centers, and um, unfortunately, many states have a shortage of foster parents, and so they're resorting to institutional means to house children. Um, it, it's not uncommon to read a news report where children are sleeping on a couch in the you know Department of Human Services or... Where the you know Department of Human Services has rented out hotel rooms to be able to um, care for and provide housing for children. Uh, of course, none of us would want that to be the case. That is an unfortunate reality in some jurisdictions. And so, well, we we might say we no longer have orphanages. Uh, we do have a shortage of appropriate homes for many children, and there are children that are are growing up and being raised in institutionalized settings.
0: Hmm. That sounds actually less desirable than orphanages. Uh, you
1: know, um, it, it's a hard comparison to make. Some of the, the reasons that children move to a residential treatment center um, can stem from some of the um, behavioral challenges or other needs that they may have. Um, but um, it's also hard to compare, you know, what orphanage settings are like from one country to the next. Sure. Um, in in um, my professional experience, I've been to orphanages all over the world um no orphanage is the place any of us would want our children to be growing up long-term, right. but there's certainly uh, a very distinct difference in the um, quality of care and the resources that are, are provided within these um, settings, um, safety, um, ratio of caregiver to children. You know, there's lots of different factors that, that would rem- be in play there. Yeah,
0: I remember when uh, the Cold War ended. You, you're probably too young for that, but... Uh, <laughs>
1: I remember uh, it too.
0: yeah. <laughs> And uh, I remember there was a real scandal for a while that there were children in some Eastern European countries that were really being neglected in these, quote, orphanages, close quote. Hopefully that's gotten better now.
1: Um, it has, though. There are certainly countries and in, in, um, situations in some countries where they still have very dire um, situations. Of what um, what you're talking about um Caused me to think of the conditions in Romania because that yes. did catch many American specifically. Detention. At the yeah. time, there were a lot of very heart wrenching photos, and um, you know that has changed. Um, but there are still, unfortunately, children that are living in um, dire situations in um, in many countries around the world, and um, they're, they're living in, in conditions that are absolutely unacceptable for human beings to be living in. And um, unfortunately, w- those children often have no path to even um, let alone be considered for adoption. But no one's looking to help support their family and, and considering un- reunification. No one's, you know, working to um, ensure that this child's getting an education or these children are getting wow. um, educations or having their health needs met. um, It's uh, a very bleak existence. And so, um, you know, I I wouldn't want to make the jump to say, let's take all those children in those orphanages, and let's find adoptive homes for them. Um, That might be the case. And that might be the best option for some of them. Um, But first, we should even be asking, you know, do they have um, families do you know are, are we able to do some type of reunification or offer the support that's needed? And um, unfortunately, in some countries, the social infrastructure is so poor that that's not even a possibility right now.
0: Back to this country, how long generally uh, realizing that it can be different with each case does a, an adoption take?
1: Um, it, you're exactly right that it's different for each case. For um, an adoption from foster care, as I mentioned, this is usually stemming um, from either a familial relationship or first by somebody who has served as a foster parent to that child. So they, you know, if we can say that the adoption takes uh, a year or so, and it does, um, that child may have already previously been living with the foster family. And um, once the adoption's finalized, the living situation might not even change. Um, and so, it, uh, but thinking through it, once that child's um, permanency goal has moved from reunification to pursuing adoption, we might think of that as taking, you know, a year or so, depending on the jurisdiction or, you know, um, many other factors that, that could be included. Um, in, um, one of which is, you know, is this contested in any way? Are there others who are I'm um, seeking to adopt this child or are opposed to the adoptive placement or is everyone on the same page moving towards that adoption for something like a, a private infant domestic adoption. Um, the child generally um, joins the family um, either at the hospital or within the first few weeks of be, you know, after being born. Um, generally um, what that would look like in the United States is that the expectant parent identifies the adoptive parents before the birth happens. And so um, the child would um, join the adoptive parents again, you know, shortly after the birth, but then the adoption's not going to be finalized, you know, for many months. And that's going to follow that um, state timeframes in terms of what's required um, to move from that, you know, placement with the parents to the finalization of the adoption.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, practicing law, um, I handled a few of those actually, mm-hmm. uh, and and it was a very interesting process. I don't, you know, I haven't followed how that may have changed over the time since that uh, when I was doing that. So, if a woman is pregnant and decides that she wants to have her child adopted, what are her options regarding that process?
1: Well, the first thing we'd want to ensure is that she's had really good counseling and understands what that means. Um, and, and we would look to um, see, see that she has you know counselors and legal representation. Um, but if she's choosing to move forward, um, my recommendation would be that she's working with an agency that can help connect her to prospective adoptive parents. And then we'd want her to be empowered to make a decision on what's the right placement for her child. Um, one of the ways that adoption has changed over the years, and I think this is really important for um for Americans who who perhaps don't understand what adoption currently looks like, or um, only understands what it looked like, you know, a number of decades ago is that now um, in the United States, the vast majority of adoptions are what we would call an open adoption Mm -hmm. where the um, birth family has an ongoing connection and relationship with the Mm -hmm. adoptee and the adoptive family after the um, adoptive placement has happened. And so um, part of as, as she's making that decision, um, she's going to um, also be deciding, you know, who, who am I going to be maintaining this relationship with and what's that going to look like? And so, you know, as she's, as she's making a plan and making that consideration, an adoption agency, you know, counselors, her attorney, they can be advising her on um, what her rights are, what her options are, and ensure that she has good information to make a plan that's good for both her and for her child. How, do, how does how would she go about finding the proper agency uh, to
0: represent her or to give her advice?
1: You know, um, that, that's a, a really good question. Um, we have a list of agencies on our website, adoptioncouncil.org. Um, she could also look online. I, I would recommend finding someone who's local to her that's licensed in her state and that is able to meet with her and and connect with her. Um, Because you and I are talking right now during COVID, different people have different levels of comfort in terms of meeting in person. Um, But I would find uh, an ability to meet in as comfortable a setting as possible and um, ensure that um, her questions are answered. Um, Even if she doesn't know that she wants to make an adoptive placement, this could be a great way to learn more about adoption, what open adoption looks like and what her options are uh, moving forward, um, choosing a family, that sort of thing. Is
0: there still the possibility, as there certainly was when I did those cases, of a closed adoption, meaning that the uh, parents, the mother, birth parents, would not want to have their names known, or is that no longer permitted? Um,
1: it, it's not that it's not permitted. It's not common, um, and, and so um, it would be a, a rare situation where that happens. If that is what the um, birth mother wanted, um, she would have an option not to have that information disclosed but there are some caveats to that. States have changed their laws in terms of um, allowing adoptees access to the um, original birth records, and then, of course, with things like um, social media and, and even more so um, DNA testing, um, inability or a desire to stay private isn't always in her control. It's not always in control of the adoption agency or the adoptive family. You know, others can um, start, you know, making connections. And um, and so the idea that someone could keep something completely um, and, and totally closed is not a, a guarantee or a promise that any professional could make towards her. Um, what they could do is say, you know, here's what the current law is. Here's what we can offer you right now. But they should also be informing her that um, the reality of DNA testing is that um, there, there's going to be... Um, factors that um, can't continue to um, keep her identity you know fully confidential.
0: And of course the father
1: would have to consent as well if the father is known correct um, That's correct um, the, that's going to be state specific but right. um, you know the the birth mother um, would have certain rights within the, the hospital and, and um, if there is a, a birth father known um, he would need to consent um, certainly if there's some type of a, an adoption proceeding, um, he should be informed of that, and his legal rights um, should be recognized. Um, if he's looking to parent, then um, that would be um, considered prior to an adoption placement.
0: Uh, I remember doing some step-parent adoptions when uh, one of the parents had abandoned the child effectively without any contact or support, say, within a year or two. Uh, are those still permitted? Um,
1: yeah, my organization doesn't focus as much on step parent adoptions, but but certainly that um, that is a very common type of adoption in the United States and um, something that happens on a very regular basis. And so um, you know, every state is going to have their own system for handling Correct. that. Often it's the easiest type of an adoption to complete um, because the child is staying in the care and custody of an existing parent already. and so there's often, fewer legal um, and bureaucratic steps to take before that can be finalized. Once an adoption is completed, then
0: the adopting parents become legally responsible for that child in every sense of the term,
1: correct? That's correct, yes.
0: And if somebody has uh, allowed their child to be adopted, they cease to have that legal responsibility. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Yeah, that's part of what they are doing is they're relinquishing those rights to the adoptive parents. What are safe haven laws? Uh, Safe haven laws exist um, as a means of ensuring that um, women who um, give birth have a safe and legal way to um, uh, relinquish their child to uh, a government authority or to a safe child welfare authority without negative ramifications for them. So, and these are very rare, um, but um, we've all probably seen headlines where um, a young woman gives birth, uh, perhaps she didn't even know she was pregnant. She's scared. She makes very um, poor and tragic decisions that endanger the life of her child. Instead, she can take the child to a, a designated safe haven. This would allow... Um, her to, to do that and there, there are no legal ramifications. She's not caught up in the um, you know n- she's not viewed as a child abandoner or connected in any way to, to negative outcomes and her child has a safe ability um, to remain in um, in care and, and to receive services. So um, these are, are designed for those you know very rare circumstances where, um, we don't want these children to, we don't want these young women in particular to have no good, safe, legal options for them.
0: Right. And there's one other type of adoption I'd, I'm pretty sure you don't get involved in, that would be adult adoptions where one adult adopts another adult.
1: Um, that's not something that we have expend a lot of resources for. Um, we do think that there are cir- circumstances where that is a great thing and should really be celebrated. I have in mind Uh, Wesley, when um, we were talking earlier about how, unfortunately, there are some youth that emancipate from the foster care system um, without the permanency of an adoptive family and without a strong or solid or healthy connection to their birth family. Um, In those situations, if, say, a, a young adult is then adopted um, by someone who has a, a relationship or a connection to them. That's something that I think most of us or all of us would really um, celebrate and, and welcome. Um, it does offer um, the the legal relationship that that family um, affords, and so it can be a great thing. It's not going to be um, connected to, say, adoption subsidies or other things that um, would be for...
0: Um, but it creates that you, relationship formally.
1: Exactly. That's right.
0: That's right. Um, there are, uh, and I've read about this, uh, people who've been adopted who are searching for their uh, birth parents, and birth parents who want to be found by their adopt uh, the child that they uh, relinquished for ch- for adoption. Um, are you involved in any of that? And, and if people are interested in that, how do they go about trying to find each other?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So um, my organization does have resources about search and reunion, um, and in as you. Um, very rightly said, this can happen, you know, um, from the adoptee looking to connect with um, birth parents, or it can happen as birth parents are seeking out to find an adoptee or or both. Um, I think the the first step would be to, if we know the um, adoption agency that helps facilitate that adoption, I would reach out to them and see, do they have more records? Are they um, able to help make that connection? Um, A lot of times there's a process of mutual consent where both parties agree, then there's an ability to make that connection for them. Uh, You know, some states have um, uh, registries where the parties can register and and be notified um, for that. Um, In other states, it might be going through and and, uh, finding identifying information, um, say through um, birth records, and then making connections from there. What we would um, say is that it's really important for, for all parties involved to have good counseling through this situation, um, and so um, if if one's pursuing that, and, and um, very often these end up um, as very positive, heartwarming stories and um, meaningful reunions and, and lasting, ongoing relationships. But there are times where um, someone you know has high expectations for a really positive reunion, and that doesn't happen. And so um, having the support of a counselor and others to help. Um, set expectations to process what they're looking for in these relationships can be really helpful up front. And then especially if it's a a disappointing um, first encounter or um, the expectations or hopes for that relationship aren't realized, there is already an existing relationship that can help somebody process what um, is often then um, an emotionally very challenging situation.
0: Uh, is there any uh, help for people in that circumstance in terms of the cost of counseling
1: there it, it typically would be um, a private process and so it would look like the process you know whereby any of us would be seeking you know private counseling there are services that um, do offer you know discounted rates and and um, there are organizations that have um, really specialized in helping adoptees and you um, birth parents navigate these relationships or to train counselors um, to be adoption competent as they're supporting individuals who are navigating these relationships. Again, I would start with that adoption agency and see can they help identify resources that are specific to the state where the adoption took place or um, where the individuals are currently residing. And then from there, um, if when that's not possible, maybe broaden out a search, and look for uh, a national organization that offers that type of um, support and, and education to those individuals. Um, the resources on our website would be educational resources, I'm pointing them towards others. Organizations like the Center for Adoption Support and Education um, have great resources to train counselors and um, and provide counseling to those who are looking for it.
0: And the, and as you pointed out, this is a very state-specific uh, field so right. uh, what may be true in Virginia might not be true in Montana and so forth um, what about adoption professionals I, I that's not a term I've heard used before until I was uh, you know preparing for this interview and you were one so or maybe you are one uh, what is an adoption professional
1: an adoption professional is just a general term that's used to describe someone who has the Um, experience uh, in working in this field. Very often adoption professionals are social workers, um, but they're not necessarily a social worker. Um, They might have a different human service degree, and then they've got the specialized experience to work in the field. Every state is going to have requirements on the educational and work experience um, qualifications and expectations for particular roles within an adoption agency. Adoption agencies are licensed by their state. And then for international adoption, that's going to be true as well. There are federal regulations that stipulate what the educational and experience requirements are for the professionals in that field.
0: And anybody who's seeking to uh, obtain one should uh, research their credentials and their experience. Correct.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, I think um, especially looking at the reputation of that adoption agency. Um, not just the reputation online, but you know also how frequently are they making adoptive placements. You know, what's the um scope of their services? Where what jurisdictions do they work in? That sort of thing, and these are the questions that should be asked when seeking out that professional. Exactly. Yeah, they should um, just as they're in a sense going to be assessed by the adoption agency. We talked about that home study earlier. Um, prior to that, the prospective adoptive parents should go through a process of really interviewing the adoption agency or any adoption professionals, such as a an adoption attorney or or you know a, a home study provider who's going to be serving them. And and part of that interview should be finding out, you know, can I get references on, from those who've worked with you in the past? um, How many adoptions, you know, have you helped um, complete? You know, what are the extent of your services? Can I see in advance a copy of the contract that I'll be signing? That sort of thing so that the the prospective adoptive parents can go in well-informed and make a decision that is going to be in, you know, that's going to be the right fit for the type of adoption or for what they're looking for. Um, in terms of that relationship.
0: I'd like to get into a few of the controversies that uh, seem to sometimes swirl around adoption. One that I think shouldn't be swirling around adoption is abortion. Uh, Abortion is abortion and adoption is adoption. That's from my perspective, regardless of what one feels about abortion. Do you you think that that's right, that we should keep adoption completely away from that, that particular issue?
1: I do. You know, I think um, it, it's understandable why some people would connect that. Um, adoption is a legal option that women have when they're faced with a, an unplanned pregnancy, um, and so is adoption. And so we understand why both abortion and adoption would be considered in that regard. But in reality, I think women who are in that situation have already, you know, in a sense, made up their mind whether or not they're going to choose abortion. And so Um, I think what we want to do is ensure that women who do have an unplanned or unexpected pregnancy have really good information um, to better understand what options are in front of them in terms of adoption and whether or not that's going to be an appropriate option for them. That would
0: be uh, what choice, quote unquote, is really all about. Let people have all the information that is available to make the choice that they want to make. And I'm going to have a a personal statement. I'm not asking you to comment on this. But when I hear people say, well, I would rather have an abortion than give up my child for adoption, I'm, I'm always scratching my head on that. Because one, the child gets to live and one, the child doesn't. But that's just my opinion. I don't want, I'm not asking you to get caught up in that uh, because we want to keep this focused on adoption.
1: Well, uh, I, won't, not, I won't respond to that directly, but let me just yeah. you know, reiterate. I think what from my, my organization would want is that any woman who is facing an unplanned pregnancy has really good information about adoption so that she right. can make an informed decision that's going to be right for her and right for her child. And so um, whether or not abortion you know, stays legal, whether or not um, you know, she has the support of a partner, we want her to be empowered and to, to understand what her options are. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation about adoption. And so part of what we would wanna see is that, um, that you know, not just these women, but that Americans have a better understanding of adoption what does it mean um, to have an open adoption? What um, what do what do the outcomes look like? Um, this is not a situation. Uh, a, a woman who's uh, pregnant and chooses to make an adoption plan, um, that child doesn't go into the foster care system. Yeah, the child can go directly to the adoptive parents who have um, th- that she's identified in advance that she thinks is a good fit for her child, and she's approved. That that she has approved, yeah, and, yeah. and she um, she has a, an absolute right to to know who they are, to know what are their values, what is important, uh, what's important to her about the the parents, and then she can seek um, to find the family that's that's good, and then she should be having her adoption agency and her adoption attorney serving her in that regard. Um, yeah, you know, and, she and it be seems saying what that she wants that placement to look like, and then they'll be supporting her. And um, following through on the request that she has in that regard,
0: it seems to me that's an issue that uh, should be uncontroversial in the sense that if one is very pro-choice or one is very pro-life, I think those two contentious sides could come into agreement on what you just said.
1: Well, and and fortunately, that is what we see. This this remains a bipartisan issue. Uh, it has been bipartisan for years. And um, at the federal level, um, you know, from one administration to the next, things don't wildly change in terms of adoption policy. That's true for members of Congress, um, where you have um, Democrats and Republicans who have been the leading champions, you know, over the years. And so, this isn't, you know, one party or one group that is supportive of adoption. Uh, what it often comes down to is do these individuals have good information? Um, perhaps they've got a prior um, experience. They're an adoptive parent, they're an adoptee, um, or you know they've been connected to adoption in some way, and then they go on to champion that. Um, but you're exactly right. This is not a pro-choice or pro-life divide. Um, social workers um, could be pro-life or pro-choice and be adoption professionals um, serving the interests of uh, birth parents who are looking for more information you know, about what their rights are in this regard. Uh, there's another issue that's come up
0: uh, in the last, say, 10 years, I think, and that has to do with LGBT controversies. Uh, Catholic Charities, as I recall, I think it's in Massachusetts, lost the right to actually place children for adoption because their religious beliefs prevented them from placing with gay couples. Uh, then there was even just a recent Supreme Court case about that, I think uh, involving Philadelphia, uh, where the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow that kind of exclusion based on the particular details of that uh, um, particular case. From my perspective, it seems we need all the avenues of adoption that we can have. And if if a uh, particular uh, uh, let's say the the state may say, we're going to open up to any qualified parent. If there's a religiously oriented agency, they would say, well, we're going to practice this adoption work consistent with our faith. I don't understand the idea of trying to shut down some people because they they refuse to participate in a way that perhaps the reigning uh, culture would suggest. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. And, and why don't we step back and just talk about, again, those three types of adoption and and how that overplays with same-sex couples pursuing adoption. Um, so for foster care adoptions, that is a legal option for LGBT couples or individuals in every state in the District of Columbia. Yeah. And that's, that,
0: but that's because that's state run.
1: Uh, because it's, yeah, and and the federal government um, offers certain protections. It's state-run, but that is a a current and legal option for them. For private domestic adoption, um, again, this is something that the expectant parents are choosing. And so if an expectant parent chooses to place with a same-sex couple, then um, she or they would have the right to make that placement. And that's something that I think most uh, of the um, larger community would be supportive of she's choosing who the, the adoptive parents are going to be and then for inner country adoption it's actually the foreign governments who make this decision mm. so there are some countries who say um, they' that they won't place with same-sex couples and there are other countries who say um, that they do place with same-sex couples and that's that's based on the the You know, national sovereignty that those countries have and the rights that they can put in place, just as they can put in place other restrictions that we may or may not agree with. They have age limits, they have income requirements, they have all sorts of eligibility criteria. And, um, you know, no two countries are the same. Um, I think most of us can find countries that we agree with, find countries that we disagree with. uh, But the reality is, these are sovereign nations and they get to make that um, placement. Uh, criteria, decisions. Our role is to be following both the. US law and that foreign country's law um, in terms of that adoption process.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. I, I do think it's fair to say that same-sex couples uh, for the most part are able to
1: adopt, right? That's exactly right. Yes. Um, th- again, the the biggest barrier in terms of um, way where they can't adopt would be um, certain countries that just prohibit, an LGBT individual or couple from pursuing adoption. And one other issue that seems to have come up relatively recently that has
0: kind of surprised me is that there are some people uh, who are beginning to criticize um, interracial adoption. Are you finding that to be a problem these days?
1: Well, I I have read articles and and others who have um, criticized this. Um, The social science is pretty clear that the outcomes are not any different or worse for children who are raised by parents of another race. Um, And and so um, when we compare children who are adopted uh, by parents who are the same race, compare them to children who are adopted by parents of another race, their outcomes don't look different. Um, And so race is not having a negative impact um, um, at the aggregate level. There are individuals who tell stories about how, um, say, their parents or their family or their community um, didn't understand them and wasn't accepting of them. And I think those voices are important for us to listen to and learn from. But on aggregate, the data shows that that children who are placed um, for those types of adoptions have the same outcomes. And that's not true for other factors. Factors like age or special needs status um, do have a difference in terms of what Um, further outcomes might look like.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And you just brought up something that I neglected. Uh, If special needs children and adoption, is there any difference in the process uh, for adopting a special needs child, say a child with Down syndrome, just as an example, versus other children?
1: Um, Typically, that's going to be part of that home study process. So, when the social worker is going in and evaluating the individual or the couple um, that's going to be part of the decision that's made. Can, um, can this family um, have a placement of a child, not just a child with special needs, but which particular medical special needs would be appropriate or cognitive special needs would be appropriate? And um, that will be part of that assessment that is made at that home study stage. And um, it's often going to be made also within a foster care setting. Certain parents are going to be able to help meet those needs and respond to any, you know, accompanying challenges um, in a better or different way than others. And so the social worker should be helping make that assessment in advance. Um, to, on this subject though, um, let, let me say uh, the majority of international adoptions are now children who have a medical or a cognitive special need of some sort. Oh, really? so. Yeah, that changed in around 2014, where it went from um, the majority who didn't to the majority who did. And, and now um, it's a significant majority who do have some type of a medical special need of some sort. And so what we need to do as, a, as the adoption community and, and the wider community is help ensure that these families have the resources to support those children.
0: Um, and, and to support that decision when that's what people want to do, to love a child with special needs.
1: That's right. Yeah, and and it's um, it's something that there um, that um, there are a lot more resources now than there were ten or certainly twenty years ago, and there are communities that are better prepared uh, for um, supporting these families. Um, but even more work needs to be done. And what we wouldn't want is for the child's special need to be the barrier that's preventing that child from finding the permanency of a family. And um, as um, it's probably not a surprise, there are um, fewer families who can meet the more profound sure. needs or the you know long-term needs that that children may have. And so, um, for those situations, I think that just means there's more work cut out for um, a- adoption professionals to um, identify and support families who are able to meet those needs. Back to the racial issue
0: again. There are no laws prevent, preventing uh, or prohibiting interracial adoption, are there?
1: Uh, there's not, no. So the Federal laws were passed in the 90s. First, there was a law called, uh, everyone calls it MEPA, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, that was um, amended a few years later with something called IEPA, um, the Interethnic uh, Placement Act. And, and what that did is it ensured that race is not going to be a factor that would um, prohibit the, the placement of a child there. So there's federal laws that put those protections in place.
0: Are there any laws that uh, you would like to see enacted um, that would make adoption an easier process for people in a more productive process?
1: Uh, that's um, There are, um, but let me start by actually um, talking about a law that will support families post-adoption as well. Um, okay. Um, there's currently an adoption tax credit that um, many adoptive families can qualify for. Unfortunately, low-income families don't qualify for this credit. So a family like mine received the adoption tax credit. Um, I adopted in 20, my, my wife and I, or our family adopted in 2018. When I filed my taxes in early 2019, I um, filed for the adoption tax credit and later received it. Had I been a you know lower income household, I wouldn't have received that tax credit because I wouldn't have had the tax liability. And so, if we make the adoption tax credit refundable, we will then offer the same support to low-income families that we offer to middle-income families.
0: Oh, that and, so you'd like to see that law amended to allow low-income families to receive the same kind of benefit that you received?
1: Yes, and, and all they would need to do is um, make this. Uh, a refundable tax credit. Um, there is bipartisan legislation that's already pending. And so if any of your listeners are interested or would be supportive of that, they can find more information on our website or even how to contact their members of Congress. Are there any other issues about which
0: we should be aware that I might not have addressed?
1: One of the areas that we'd like to see is for the U.S. federal government to be more proactive for inter-country adoption. Um, unfortunately, Inter-country adoption has declined by more than 90% in, in less than two decades. And um, a big part of that, it, you mentioned this in, in the introduction, is that um, sometimes foreign countries um, make this you know, a part of their geopolitical response to the United States. Uh, but a bigger part is that we're not doing a good job of partnering with other nations. Our um, federal government isn't partnering with other nations. And so um, there are children in, in countries around the world that are waiting on families. And there are many families who are open to um, adopting these children, but we have too much bureaucracy or red tape or governmental barriers in place to uh, allow that to happen. And so uh, we we have called upon the um, US Department of State to do a better job of partnering with other nations in, you know, bilateral relationships and multilateral relationships to have adoption policies that serve children, along with um, parents and, and families. Um, currently, we have a lot of good protections in place um, for parents, but um, and we have protections that would keep children from um, inappropriate placements, but we don't have um, enough policies that protect children from remaining where they are um, when they're in unsafe or inappropriate situations. So uh, we need to be more proactive at helping those children find permanent families. If we can't find those families by reunifying them with birth family or finding an adoptive uh, family uh, within their country, then intercountry country adoption um, should be considered, and we should put the resources um, so that that can be done in a timely manner.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that that would be a very good uh, role for a, an ambassadorship-level uh, State Department official. We have them, for example, to promote religious freedom. We have them to fight human trafficking at that level. Uh, and I think having one to uh, facilitate and support adoption would also uh, be a very worthwhile endeavor. I think that's a great idea.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. and I know um, Senator Blunt has introduced legislation to that very effect. Oh wow. And, and so um, you know if if that were to become a reality, um, we would need this individual to really champion these children's rights in that regard. Right. And, and you know, until then, um, there still is work that our our current, um, federal government can do, even without that ambassador-level position, to strengthen our partnerships with other countries and and allow for um, more children who are languishing in, in orphanages to find the permanency and love of uh, family here in the United States and, and, frankly, all around the world.
0: We're out of time, and uh, I have to say this has been a very interesting and fascinating uh, uh, hour with you uh, was very informative that I hope help people who are involved in the uh, potential thought of adopting or perhaps uh, know people who
1: are. Uh, what's next for you and for the NCFA? We are uh, helping agencies respond to um, the COVID 19 pandemic. And so um, a big part of what we're trying to do is help agencies really um, recover from what um, many fields have been negatively impacted and and, and adoption is one of them. So we're um, working towards more resources and we're continuing our legislative agenda. Um, We're having a a conference for adoption professionals later this year. And we've got our eyes focused on the future because we know that adoption is often um, the um, best path for children who are waiting on permanency. We've got an upcoming uh, gala in April that uh, we're excited um, to host, to um, fundraise, but also really just to get together and celebrate adoption, celebrate adoptive families. And so um, that's what we're looking forward to in the short term. Um, And uh, we appreciate you having us um, on this podcast. We hope your listeners um, have a better understanding of adoption and certainly Um, If they're interested in more information, we have free resources that would be available to them, and we'd be happy to connect them with local um, uh, licensed adoption providers in their state um, that can serve them.
0: Wonderful. And, And your website will appear on the program notes of this episode. Ryan, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.